I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of July 25th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the International Olympic Committee's decision not to ban the entire Russian squad from the Games, while preventing an athlete who blew the whistle on the Russian drug program from competing in Rio. We'll also be joined by Tanisha Wright of the New York Liberty to talk about her team's decision to speak out about Black Lives Matter and the WNBA's decision, which it later reversed, to fine players for wearing black t-shirts. Finally, we'll talk about the psychology of free-throw shooting and whether the granny shot is the answer for DeAndre Jordan, Andre Drummond, and Josh Levine. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Did you not know that I'm a really bad free-throw shooter, (laughs) Stefan? I'm going to say I'm not surprised. You know, you big men. It's a problem. Uh, with us is Mike Pesco. Mike, I hope you're su- you're surprised. I'm in- I'm insulted. That I'm Stephen a little is not surprised, surprised because uh, you play tennis with aplomb, 
I'm terrible at anything having to do with aim, he said, turning it around <laughs> on himself. <laughs> like, I'm good at the big... Don't stand I'm next good. to Mike in the I'm bathroom. Good. Do not stand next to Mike. <laughs> at the I, can, I can position my body. If it's a sport that requires my body to go someplace, I could do that. But uh, I'm good at rebounding, but it was get directing, directing the things to go where you want the things to go. It's kind of crazy. Shuffleboard? Not a good shuffleboard player. Uh, I'm okay. You know, I'm okay with angles and like, uh, I don't know. I, there are one or two things I do well on shuffleboard and billiards, <laughs> but I, I can't make up for the fact that I just have poor aim. Are, you better, at, are you better at sports where the instruction is point your shoulder where you want to throw the ball? Yeah, like in, I was good at football because I never had to touch the ball. <laughs> <laughs> and baseball's good because you, you don't, like Wade Boggs says, you can't aim, you could just hit. And I said, good sport for me. <laughs> Even with pitching, remember in pitching, they were like, don't aim it. I'm like, I could not aim it. I could do that. <laughs> it's Mike, aim. <laughs> Mike is the host of The Gist on Slate. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Chris Sale, the White Sox pitcher who cut up not only his own throwback jersey, but every player on the entire team. He destroyed all of the jerseys because he did not like them. With a knife. We will share our own deeply held beliefs about throwback jerseys uh, with scissors in hand. You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. If you do sign up, you'll get a free two-week trial. So if you're like Chris Sale cutting up the jerseys, got to listen to that one. You can do so at Slate.com slash Hangout Plus. Big audience of Jersey cut-up fetishists. Mm-hmm. Can I just, uh, I know you said I host the gist, but this week, as I did last week, every morning around one or two, a uh, DNC quick and dirty dissection. One, no, one or two a.m.? This week. Yes, every day this week after Oof. the DNC, we come out with a, uh, a, a recap analysis Everything you want. Do I have to listen to it at two in the morning? You listen to it when you want to listen to it. But all I'm saying is we beat Morning Joe by four hours (laughs) and 14 IQ points. (laughs) (laughs) On Monday, the World Anti-Doping Agency put out the latest in a series of reports detailing the Russians' state-sponsored doping system by which they gave athletes performance-enhancing drugs and then manipulated the results of subsequent drug tests. After that, it was widely expected that the entire Russian contingent would be banned from Rio. But on Sunday, the International Olympic Committee made the decision not to make a decision about banning the Russian Olympians, leaving it to the individual governing bodies of each sport to decide whether to ban the Russians from Rio or to let them compete. Now, the track federation, I believe weightlifting as well, had prior to any of this had decided that no Russians could compete. And now it's left up to the other, you know, the Table Tennis Federation, the Volleyball Federation to decide, you know, what are we going to do with all these athletes? You might notice that the Olympics are about to start. This is going to be (laughs) a very truncated process. There's opening ceremony is on August 5th. So, Stefan, this is confusing because on the one hand, the default here is that if like the Table Tennis Federation chooses to do nothing and really there's not really much time to do anything – Um, then the Russians would be allowed to compete. But on the other hand, there's a presumption of guilt because the IOC said in its statement on Sunday, and this is in its statement saying basically we're not going to suspend any of these people. They said all Russian athletes seeking entry to the Olympic Games Rio 2016 are considered to be affected by a system subverting and manipulating the anti-doping system. So they're like, all these guys are cheating. We're not going to do anything about it. 
It's up to everybody else except us. And hey, you've got like a day to decide. This makes no sense. It makes no sense, largely because if that's the, the starting point for your argument, the end point should be, well, Russia cannot compete. And if the goal of the International Olympic Committee and every other sport that has doping issues is to clean it up in whatever, you know, whatever that means, doing your best to root out and test for and punish athletes and countries who are involved in sanctioned doping, then you're not taking a step closer to that. And there have been a lot of people in the international sports community that have argued that. A lot of athletes have come out and said this is wrong. And the counter argument is, well, it's not fair to the Russian clean athletes. And to that, I would say there's going to be collateral damage no matter what. This country was engaged in a state-sanctioned program of doping directed from the top levels of government over the course of multiple Olympics in multiple sports involving hundreds of athletes and thousands of samples. And now they're saying, well, it's up to the athletes. It's up to the federations. And that, to me, seems like a total cop-out. Well, the collateral damage that you mention is athletes from every other country are now potentially going to have to compete against Russians. And so you could say, oh, well, I lost my medal because this person who was dirty was, you know, competing in, uh, you know, gymnastics, water polo, what have you. Mike, how do you feel about the kind of individual rights versus collective responsibility issue here? I mean, there's so many violations of jurisprudential norms. Um, You know, there's double jeopardy issues here with the IOC saying that, Athletes who have tested positive in the past and have served their suspensions, that those Russian athletes are being put in a special class and will not be allowed to compete. Yeah, I I think that the collective punishment argument is actually a compelling one in many ways. And I think it would be really unfair if the world's greatest male gymnast or female fencer or the Russian synchronized swimming team, which has literally won every gold medal offered at an Olympics since Sydney, were not allowed to compete. And then, you know, maybe the Spanish or Americans would win in synchronized swimming, but they had to know they they didn't beat the Russians. And maybe the Russians were dirty. We can't prove that they were. We can't prove that they're not. But there's not a whole lot of evidence that those synchronized swimmers took performance-enhancing drugs. Then, of course, on the other hand, sure, w- this really gives a, an Olympic... Sorry, this really gives a national um, committee, this really gives the uh, Russian Olympic Committee a great get-out-of-jail-free card. You keep some athletes clean, you dope the other ones, the ones where doping helps, and then you argue unfairness for your synchronized swimmers. I think that if I had to criticize the Olympics on a couple things, this is a tough decision. But the re- reason the decision is so tough is that WADA is so seriously underfunded. You know, their, their budget's $30 million. It should mm-hmm. be closer to $100 million. And when you get in that situation, you're here two weeks before the Olympics having to make an impossible Sophie's Choice. And the other really terrible thing they did is that they banned the uh, track whistleblower Yulia Stepanova and she was the one who got she's a whistleblower she should be protected she risked her life yeah she completed she competed clean out of competition just like professional tennis players did and uh, professional NHL players did she was tested as clean in these other competitions she risked everything she had to leave the country and you're not letting her compete and that seems the most 
uh, sportocratic, bureaucratic, cover-your-ass thing of all that is absolutely an injustice. And by the way, WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, had totally backed her competing, and WADA has been critical of the IOC's decision here because WADA prepared this report that suggested this state sanction or demonstrated this state sanctioned doping. And this is not to say that WADA is by any means a virtuous player here. These allegations have existed in specific form for at least three years and in broader form for much longer than that. The other problem here, Josh, is that the way this is to be carried out in instructing the federations to look at at each athlete and their previous tests, the IOC said, don't consider a clean record as a sign of innocence. So how exactly are they going to evaluate this? But do consider a dirty record as a sign of guilt. Of guilt, right. So any previous positive test, whether it was punished or not, is automatic exclusion from these games. So if uh, Justin, beyond that, though, right. So if Justin Gatlin was Russian under the standard, Out. he would not be allowed to compete, even though he served his punishment. And I think and even, if Russian, even and if Gatlin was a weightlifter, I think what the weightlifting federation is going to do with any country with three positive tests, your whole team gets banned. Now there are fewer weightlifters on a team, so but I don't know if the United States track team would be able to compete under those circumstances. <laughs> right. And but beyond that, though, just as a matter of procedure, we don't know what the hell these federations are going to do. They could apply really strict criteria, like a minimum number of tests over a set period of time that were conducted out of competition for all drugs and you have to have blood and hormone results that are within clean ranges or it could be nothing more than a declaration that we've looked at it and we think all these athletes are clean and the problem here is that you have to consider what these federations are a lot of them are in the pocket of russia um we already saw right after the IOC announcement, the Tennis Federation cleared all the Russians. Eight Russians had qualified for the games. Equestrian did the same thing. The Judo Federation issued a statement praising Russia's role in the development of the sport. The Swimming Federation in 2014 gave Vladimir Putin its top award. The Fencing Federation is Wait, run by- Wait, the Swimming one gave him his top Fina, award? yeah. The Golden Speedo? <laughs> I think it was the Golden Speedo, yeah. The Fencing Federation is run by a Russian billionaire. I mean, the conflicts here are just too wild and too you know numerous to 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 think that this can work out in an an equitable way for for these athletes and for the Olympics generally. And the one federation that did the right thing, track and field, which is now run by Sebastian Coe, you know, its last president is indicted on corruption charges in France. So even if the athletes are saying we need we're clean, we need to strike a blow for cleanliness, the federations who are representing the athletes do not want to admit there is a problem, only care about staying in expensive hotels, will not do anything to combat the problem. Nothing will change. And don't want to alienate the third biggest country on the planet that is run by a dictator which spent $50 billion to run the last Olympics and was awarded the 2013 World Track Championships and the 2014 Winter Olympics and the 2018 World Cup. Pretty good partner there financially right. for the IOC. If you're the kind of uh, federation uh, official who's on the take, you, United States and Germany, they don't do anything for you. You want Russia in there. You want the corrupt countries. They're the ones who are bumping you up to uh, the suite in the five star hotel, not just the regular room. So, Stefan, correct me if I'm wrong, but people could look at this recent water report. It came out on Monday and say, well, the IOC like acted within the week and made a decision, but that's that's not correct, right? Like there have been many, many, many incremental reports before that. The Track Federation acted in November of 2015. Mm -hmm. 
So the IOC just deciding this was the report that was going to lead them to, you know, make its final decision going into Rio, that's ridiculous, right? Uh, I think it's ridiculous. Okay. So given that, I think the issue here is clearly one of, you know, cowardliness, cravenness, the IOC coming out and making this incredibly strong statement about how tainted all the Russian athletes are, banning all the ones who've had positive drug tests before, um, and then basically saying, we're not going to make a decision on the ones who've tested clean. We're going to make that, um, you know, leave that up to the individual sports. I I totally agree with you, Mike, that this is a diff- very difficult decision. They chose just the easiest possible they they grandstanded on the things that are easy to grandstand on they punted all the difficult decisions to other people um when they actually were forced and when they had the opportunity to make decisions it seems like individually on the whistleblower and i would argue on like the kind of double jeopardy situation of banning people who've already been banned i think they made all the wrong decisions and and not they, to mention appeals how are you going they're going to ban any appeals right here? and they made the wrong decision on timing here because the way the track federation did it they made the ban back in november 2015 maybe they intended to keep um you know, them banned for the entire time. But they at least allowed for a process whereby all the parties knew what the steps of the process were, how it would be adjudicated, what bodies would adjudicate it. You know, they gave opportunities for the Russians to show that they had changed. They gave opportunity for the court, um, the CAS, Court of Arbitration for Sport, to rule. The IOC has basically ensured that there's no way that any kind of legitimate legal process can play out, that it'll all be ad hoc. And um, so I just think they've done absolutely everything wrong and just proven that they are who they, you know, we thought they were, RIP Dennis Green. But I don't know how much earlier they could have uh, undertaken their investigation. The track and field stuff, they had a little more a lead time on it, and they were eventually able to ju- give a more just punishment. And the uh, it's been a few months since they since uh, it's been known what Rodchenkov, who ran the lab and talked about this mouse hole where they exchanged clean samples for dirty samples in Sochi, and also talked about the the vials that couldn't be opened that the Russians spent. Uh, I don't know, manpower and expertise. Instead of Sputnik, they're working on how to crack open a urine sample and then reseal it so that there are only scratches that indicate that it's been cracked open. But that's only been a few months, and these things take more time. And if they, this is what goes back to Wada's budget. If they really wanted to look for it, they could have looked for it. It takes these extraordinary people to come up, and then Wada says, "Oh, thanks. We have this gigantic uh, apparatus in place, but what we really need is a uh, disaffected former Russian uh, doping lab. Uh, yeah. We what we really need to rely on is a uh, the guy who ran Russia's anti-doping lab, which turned out to be a pro-doping lab. We really need him to, uh, you know, spill his guts to a newspaper. Or a I don't javelin know how much... thrower or journalists. I mean, the, this was the really began with the German documentary um, that yeah. these guys, that the whistleblowers went to. So let's talk about. Can I ask you a question, though, of what Russia could have done? I mean, sorry, let me 
throw a couple hypotheticals at you. Do you think it would have done anything if the IOC had said that we want to punish Russia, but not the innocent athletes? So therefore, the Russian flag won't appear in the opening ceremonies. If a Russian wins a medal, we won't raise the flag. If a Russian wins a gold medal, we'll play the Olympic anthem instead of the Russian anthem. Would that have done anything for you? That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That makes sense. That's a good idea, Mike. Sure. You should I'll, get water, I'll get water to write a report on you it. Should be on, you should be on the IOC. I'm sure you'd yeah. have a lot of effect. Do you, do you like your own idea? Uh, I, I, I think maybe, yeah, I like my own idea. <laughs> Is the Olympic anthem, the Olympic anthem's pretty good. So yeah, I like my idea. Well, what it, okay. would, do, what it would do, I think, is sort of be a sop to people that believe that there is such a thing as the Olympic ideal. Um, this guy, Alan Abrahamson, who covered the Olympics for a long time for the Los Angeles Times, wrote a piece on his own website over the weekend that concluded that averred that the IOC underscored not only the place of each and every person in the world, but as well the possibilities inherent in empowering humanity to affect one-to-one change. When everything else is stripped away, that is what the Olympic are all about. That is why the modern Olympic movement, a project born in the late 19th century, can still matter in our 21st century lives. I mean, how deeply embedded in the Olympic bullshit do you have to be to talk about- In the Olympic colon. To to, to talk about empowering humanity and one-to-one change and natural rights and individual rights. We're talking about state-sanctioned fraud that has occurred here. And it seems to me what the IOC did is that it fell for these Russian charges that it was unfairly targeted with geopolitical pressure from certain nations, which is the, which are the words that one Russian Olympic official used. Okay. So I, here's what I want to talk about. Well, first, they should, instead of playing the Olympic anthem, they should play the national anthem of Kazakhstan from Borat, not, mm-hmm. the, not the real anthem. Um, I did not grow up in the like Cold War sports era. And we're seeing with this and with uh, the DNC hack and WikiLeaks, um, that Russia is kind of becoming an enemy, like a real enemy, kind of like what Mitt Ra- <laughs> yeah, kind of like, kind of like I mean, in the popular imagination, like yes. kind of like what Mitt Romney was uh, was trying to warn us of in uh, 2012. So I would be curious for what you guys think, having watched the Olympics. Um, you know, I guess in 1980 the U.S. wasn't there. In 1984, um, the Soviets weren't there, but. How do you think this is going to affect the way that Americans and maybe people around the world watch the Olympics? Will it be more fun to root against the Russians? Hmm. Will it add more enjoyment to your Olympics watching or make it more interesting? Like, do you, are you interested to see how the Russians do and what happens? Yeah, I mean, it'll be a sub-drama. How much NBC plays it up, I think, will influence how American viewers feel about it. And during those Cold War Olympics, the networks played it up. I mean, because it was real. I mean, there really were two geopolitical superpowers that had completely opposite political and economic systems. Um, And it did make the Olympics a lot more fun. The Olympics were are less interesting without the Soviet Union. Our James Um, Bond movies are less interesting. Everything is less interesting. But, you know, can we we get behind the idea? What would we rather have? 
the world on the edge of nuclear annihilation or a really fun <laughs> battle in the Olympics. I almost want we're, clean we're America. Not, not, we're, we maybe aren't on the edge, but we're not that far from nuclear annihilation, by the way, just to point that out. I just want to see clean American athletes like Justin Gatlin yeah. just really yeah. um, you know, show the, those cheating Russians who's boss. USA. Well, the problem with, the problem with rooting USA. against the Russians— the problem with rooting against the Russians is they're not going to be there in track. Um, the f- sports they're good at, like male gymnastics, we're not that good at. Some some of the fencing sports. It's wrestling, maybe. Wrestling, Americans, are, Americans are pathetic at weightlifting, so right. it's not like America's going to go against them. So I haven't looked at all the categories. We need, a, better we, at we need a Rulon Roman. Gardner versus Alexander Karelin style. They didn't style, qualify for team handball. Style wrestling uh, showdown. Yeah. This is a good idea. We'll look into this and uh, present, like, what are going to be the good U.S. versus Russia Olympic showdowns. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last week, the WNBA's Indiana Fever, New York Liberty, and Phoenix Mercury were fined $5,000 each as teams, and individual players were fined $500 each for violating the league's uniform policy. They violated that policy by wearing black warm-up shirts in support of the Black Lives Matter movement after the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. After those fines were announced, the Liberty played a matinee against the Fever in Madison Square Garden. And after the game, players for both teams addressed the assembled media in the locker room, explaining that they wouldn't be taking questions about basketball. The Liberty's Tanisha Wright, who is also the vice president of the League's Players Association, said, we feel there's still an issue here in America. We want to be able to use our platforms, use our voices. We don't want to let anyone silence us to what we can talk about. It's unfortunate that the WNBA has fined us and has not supported its players. The League and its president, Lisa Borders, ultimately rescinded those fines. And Wright and her teammates have continued to speak out about Black Lives Matter as the League goes on hiatus heading into the Olympics. Joining us now is Tanisha Wright of the New York Liberty and the WNBA Players Association. Hello, Tanisha. Hello. Thank you for having me. Sure. And um, we had Andrew Hawkins of the Cleveland Browns on last week, and he talked about how every individual, whether in sports or outside, has a particular boiling point, a point at which you know you feel like you have to speak out about this issue or any issue, really. And so going back to when you and your teammates decided that you had to speak out, um, how did that conversation go? And how did you decide collectively that this was the time? Well, the conversation was, um, it was many. We, as a team, um, just were having a lot of dialogue about what was going on and what we were seeing. Obviously, the Alton Sterling, Fernando Castillo, and even things before that, I think, this kind of gave us, like you said, a boiling point to the point where we're like, we didn't want to be silent about what was going on, and we understood that we had a platform and that we could be able to use that. Um, but it really just came about from a conversation amongst um, 12 women from a lot of different backgrounds, all feeling the same kind of things. And you decided that 
the way that you would speak out, or one of the ways, was that you would wear these black shirts. Um, how did that decision come about, and what were you hoping to express? Um, yes, again, that decision came about. It really was a player-organized thing. Um, <clears throat> we talked about how we could use our voice, what we could do, what would be impactful. And the best thing that we came up with was to be able to make a statement um, at our game because that is our platform. So we decided to get the shirts that said Black Lives Matter as well as Dallas Five because we understand that they're not mutually exclusive. We can talk about both things, and they're both things that are happening in our society and things that we want to speak out against. Now, Tanisha, you wore the shirts for four games in a row before you guys were fined. My suspicion is that the league figured this would last a couple of games and then the players would resume to keeping the court this neutral place. And if they wanted to speak out in the locker room to reporters and whatever other media they they wanted to, they would do that. But that didn't happen. Do you feel like like extending the protest pushed the league to take action, and that was where they, they made a mistake? Well, actually, we only wore the Black Lives Dallas Five shirts for one game. Mm-hmm. Um, we made that statement, and then, again, we didn't want it to be a situation where we only did one thing and then people forgot about this whole thing. So we, as a team, collectively, again, came up with another way that we can abide, comply with the league and their rules and their situations, understanding that they have a corporate world that they need to answer to as well. So we came up with the idea of just getting plain black Adidas shirt to continue on that that message. I'm not exactly sure what pushed the league to do the fines, but my guess would be that there was a strong feeling about everything that was going on across the league, not just with the New York Liberty. You saw the Phoenix Mercury do it. You saw the Indiana Fever do it. I know Washington was very strong. So my guess is that they got a strong feeling that other teams would follow suit after you saw Minnesota, who was the first team to do this. And so they took action. Could you explain to me the logistics of getting the other teams to do it? Because it seems to me that unique among athlete protests, like we saw a bunch of athletes from different teams at the ESPYs, but that's not a competition. And we saw the St. Louis Rams and a player on the Cleveland Browns do it, but we didn't see a coordination between teams, especially between teams playing. So how'd that all go down? What conversations were held? Right. Again, we're extremely proud of our colleagues and the women who are standing up. And just because everyone wasn't able to do it doesn't mean that teams collectively weren't backing the rest of the teams. Again, it was a conversation, and the way the logistics happened, the memo had came down to the teams, and I think some of the players, they kind of felt maybe a little strong-armed, the memo coming down and it being stated that we'd be fine, and I'm pretty sure that some of the teams were told, or some of the players were told that they'd also be suspended. Um, We understand that our job is to play basketball. We're out there to play basketball. We understand also that we have other responsibilities, social responsibilities, but that shouldn't interfere with us being able to play basketball to be able to do our job. Um, And so we wanted to stay in line with that. And so I believe that some of the girls felt a little stronger in terms of whether there would be suspensions that followed. And so they found other ways. I know Washington wore Black Lives Matter t-shirt to the game and from the game. So if there was any media before the game, they would be able to see it. Um, I know Seattle posted their picture before a game. There was a lot of backing. It just didn't happen the same exact way. But um, we're extremely proud of all the teams and all the players who took part of 
of all of this to make a stand for what's really at point here, and that's the issues with the social injustices that are happening around our country. We don't want to get too boggled down with just talking about the fines. You know, Tanisha, what's interesting to me here is that in the history of women's sports, most of the protests and have been more directed at equality, specific to women's sports. And since we've had professional women's sports, the message, I think, has always been for the athletes that you should be happy to have the opportunity to play, that you don't have a big fan base. There isn't a lot of money. The, the, the sport has to be built up over time. But what you've done is you've taken it out of that context. And you're saying here that we're a bunch of women athletes. We have a pro league. And we also have a social conscience that it's beyond just the equality and the right to play. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. First and foremost, we're, we're human, right? Um, secondly, we're African-American women, um, and this league is predominantly made up of African-American women. Um, and so these issues, they affect us directly, right? I have three nephews who I love to death, and if something was to ever happen to them, I would be devastated. So for me to sit around and be silent on an issue that I know affects them, and the many brothers, I have five brothers, I have uncles, I, you know, I just, there's so many um, people just in my realm that's affected by this specific issue, I believe. And so I can't just sit and stay silent. And I think a lot of the women feel the same way. We say, this is so much more about a t-shirt. I don't know if the league understood that, right? We, we have voices and we're going to speak out on social injustices. Um, we have a social responsibility to, um, as athletes, to use our platform to touch and to be impactful um, as as positively as we can. And so um, as women, too, you know, we want to be able to do that um, as much as possible. So you had a piece in the Players' Tribune um, where you talked about um, you were born in Brooklyn, you grew up living in the projects outside of Pittsburgh, and there was a passage that reads, most of our lives are spent trying to understand ourselves, our needs, our wants, our values, which shapeshift with age and experiences. And so with this experience you've had, I'm curious if you've thought about um, growing up and how the experiences that you had growing up informed the kind of values that you have today that led you to, to stand up and, and make these statements. Absolutely. I think when um, coming from a neighborhood that I come from, which is a very at-risk um, neighborhood, you see so many different things. There's so many different levels to it and um, different things like that. So that um, growing up in that, being immersed in those kind of environments, understanding the poverty and the different um, racial injustices that just happened just in my neighborhood, um, let alone other neighborhoods and other people and different stuff like that, um, it definitely makes me aware, more aware, right? And, again, for me to sit back and not speak out on those things and share, and I think it's all about educating and making people aware that these things go on, um, these things happen, and, um, and I don't get to... I don't get to walk away from these things, right? I'm going to be um, an African-American woman for the rest of my entire life, and so that carries with me, that goes with me, and I have to live with that. So I want to be able to um, make other people aware of these social injustices that are happening, um, the different levels that, that are unfair in our society. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think growing up where I grew up, it definitely makes me more aware. You know, with uh, male 
basketball professional athletes or or NBA players as opposed to WNBA players. An argument against uh, activism for years was all the money at stake in Michael Jordan's Republicans buy sneakers too. And, you know, every uh, NBA player thinks of themselves as a brand. Well, if you look at the WNBA, uh, the salaries are much, much lower and rookies make $40,000. So on the one hand, you could argue, well, you'd be more sensitive to a fine. But on the other hand, especially with uh, so many of you guys uh, earning money from overseas and in some cases not I, I know you played a few years overseas but with some of the big stars making most of their money overseas I wonder how the monetary factors weighed into the consideration to take part and perhaps uh, risk a fine um, again like I said I don't I don't think that that mattered a, a lot of a lot of our women were, were for it I think a lot of it maybe came from the scare of maybe being suspended. I think that that was more of an issue than it was the fine. Um, the fine is the fine. Um, it's, I'm not sitting here saying that it's not a large amount for, for our league. There are players who aren't making that much money. So it's a considerate amount, but, um, this was more important. This issue that was at hand is more important. And, um, you know, our, our men counterpart, we appreciate all the support that we've gotten from them. We have gotten, um, some support from those NBA guys, um, so the fact that, you know, it's a different, it's a different ball game when it comes to them and when it comes to us monetarily wise, um, it doesn't change their support for us. So, um, I want to be clear on that, that they, they still show their support, tweet and conversations, different things like that. Um, so we definitely appreciate that. Have you, uh, been in touch with these guys? Maybe is there a way to work with them? Have you met with Carmelo in New York? Our union has been in touch with a um, with a couple of guys, and there's some things um, that we're trying to put into motion to continue this conversation. Um, this is something where we don't, again, we don't want to let it die down. We want to continue to have this conversation, and um, we want to push things forward to the next phase of this whole thing. Just trying to use different platforms, trying to have um, open dialogue with community leaders. And um, we've been able to make those type of con contacts and connections through our union. So we're looking forward to being able to continue this. And I'm sure the conversations with the guys will continue to happen as well because we, we saw at the ESPYs, the stands that they made, they're obviously on board with um, pushing forward this issue and making it um, a public thing where people are getting involved and people are voicing their opinions and we're having this open dialogue. I think so many times people are scared just to have the conversation. We can't be scared to have these conversations just because they're tough issues. we got to be able to have these, hash them out in a respectful way, and let's talk about it. Let's get through this together because this is not a, a just a black problem, right? No, this is a, an American problem. We're all going to be affected by this in some way, shape, or form. So just kind of generally, what are your thoughts on how the media – covers the WNBA. Um, and there have been a lot of complaints, rightly so, um, that the league doesn't get enough attention and doesn't get enough coverage. And yet um, you guys stood up in the locker room and said, you know, kind of like Stefan was saying before, a lot of people would say, oh, you should be grateful that the press is there and even wants to talk to you about basketball. But you guys said, no, we don't want, really want to talk about basketball. So how do you feel like in general you guys are covered and how do you feel like the press has responded to your request to, right. to not talk I, about basketball? I think, I think in general, um, you know, the league doesn't get as much attention um, as our counterparts or even as um, other women's sports. You look at the, um, 
the women's soccer cup and different things like that. Um, we, we don't get as much attention as those other people and those other sports or whatnot. So that's a little bit disappointing. But I will say this, and I want to make this very loud and clear. The amount of support that we've received from the media with standing up for what we believe in has been amazing. They've been extremely supportive, extremely um, active in what we want to talk about. And when we made the statement that we made, I mean, we got question after question after question after question. I mean, a lot more questions than we would generally um, even get on basketball. So I think that... um, Were you worried that the press would just be like, uh, we don't really want to talk about that? (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. Like I said, we made the... We had a statement. We had a statement um, a couple weeks beforehand um, with the Black Lives Matter, with T-shirts that we wore, and they were very receptive to that, and they asked a lot of questions to that as well. Um, we just wanted to be able to use a different platform and, a, and make a, another statement um, to get people's attention on this. And I will say that the press rise to the occasion. We made a cry out to them for them to be able to use their voices as well um, and use their platform as well, and this is their platform. We asked them. Um, we called them out and said, we need you guys to write about this. We're going to use our platforms, and we need you guys to be able to use what you can use, your tools and your resources, and this is one way that you can do it um, is by writing about these things, and they've answered the call. So we um, we appreciate all the support and all the press that we've been getting. Again, we want to make sure that it stays on the right thing, on the issues at hand, um, and so we want to continue to push that agenda forward. And so we're appreciative of the press and everything that they've put out so far. So your teammate, Tina Charles, is going to be at the Olympics in Rio. That's obviously, we've been talking about platforms a lot. That's a big one. And there's a history of protests. We can think of uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 1968 Mm -hmm. raising their fists with the black gloves. Are you hoping to see something like that from your WNBA colleagues or from other athletes in the U.S. contingent? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly um, if, if anything that they're, that they're going to do anything. I think that right now they're focused on um, being able to play and bring back the, bring back the gold. I think that, the, that this is an important time for them. Um, you know, obviously um, we support whatever it is that, that they're doing because they're representing our country, which, um, you know, we're, we're all a part of. So I'm not exactly sure whether or not they'll make a stand or anything like that. But, um, you know, we we just want to support them and what they're doing. But I'm not exactly sure that'd be a question for um, any one of them, you know, who's, who's going to be there. But um, I know that, you know, their WNBA players and what we've done thus far has already made a stand. So that they may even get asked questions while they're at the Olympics and stuff like that. And, again, it gives them another another opportunity to bring awareness to the social um, issues that's happening here in America. Tanisha Wright is the vice president of the WNBA Players Association, and she plays for the New York Liberty. And, Tanisha, I have to mention that you guys are 18 and 8. I'm just going to get one, one reference <laughs> into leading the Eastern Conference. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. 
Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Sunday in Los Angeles, the U.S. men's basketball team beat China 106-57 in an Olympic warm-up game. While you'd have to think the Chinese players were a little embarrassed to lose by 49 points, Clippers center DeAndre Jordan suffered his own personal humiliation at the end of the game. Jordan airballed a free throw, leading his teammates, Kevin Durant, DeMarcus Cousins, and Carmelo Anthony, good free throw shooters all, to go into hysterics on the bench. Back in February, Jordan talked with his teammate, J.J. Redick, about the psychology of free throw shooting on Reddick's podcast. Uh, let's listen to a clip of that conversation. Do you think that at times your struggle is it's almost like a self-perpetuating cycle because it is that like there's that expectation now you're, you're getting fouled? I mean, what what is the mindset there? I, I know it's it's challenging. I mean, it's, it would be challenging for anybody. But what, what is that mindset as, as you're kind of getting fouled throughout the course of a game? I think before I was so frustrated and so nervous to go up there that I would just think like, okay, don't fucking airball it. Like I can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't airball it. Just don't do that. And then it'll be okay. You know, <laughs> just don't fucking airball it. Oh, well that, that uh, is a shame for Deandre Jordan. Um, there's a really fascinating piece by Tom Haberstraw on ESPN uh, last week about the psychology of free throw shooting, where he talks about how embarrassment plays a major role in why big men like Jordan and his USA basketball teammate, Andre Drummond, are so bad at shooting free throws. That's also the topic of an episode of the Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Revisionist History. That episode, titled Big Man Can't Shoot, is about Will Chamberlain's brief experimentation with shooting free throws underhanded, a la Rick Barry and his choice to go back to shooting overhand, even though he was terrible at it, because the granny shot made him feel like a sissy. Uh, Mike, free throw psychology, your thoughts? Yes, I I mean, as Malcolm shows, there really is little argument against shooting underhanded free throws except for how it will look, especially if you are terrible at free throw shooting. And this afflicts big men, this afflicts women, this afflicts all manner of player. And yet, as Malcolm uh, pointed out, there are two players in all of men's college basketball shooting free throws underhand. One was uh, Shinanu Anawaku. Uh, who's actually drafted by the Rockets, and the other was Rick Barry's son. So there you go. That's that's how it. That's how you gotta shoot underhand free throws. You gotta have a connection or be a thousand miles away. And it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. And it, it does upset me almost. It seems headstrong and broish and anti-intellectual and incurious. And I can't just blame the players. You gotta blame coaches for not begging players to do it, to try something to improve their free throws. Think about how many millions more dollars a player could earn or a decent player who isn't at all, isn't drafted because they could hack a Shaq or Drummond or, you know, Anawaku. What I found really interesting about Haberstraw's piece is the deconstruction of the free throw. Um, there have been studies that have looked at hand size. Hand size is so important as we know. In many sports, hand size, it all comes down to hand size, but it doesn't come down to hand size. Apparently, the theory had been that the bigger your hands are, the, the worse free throw shooter, the, the worse a free throw shooter the you are. The ball just swims in your enormous mitt. Yes, except that Kawhi Leonard, whose hands are almost as big as Shaquille O'Neal's apparently, 
made 87% of his free throws last year. And Avita Sabonis, who was like eight foot two, also was an 80% free throw shooter from the line. But you can break down the free throw, as you can imagine, from release angle, release height, release velocity, peak height, approach velocity, horizontal release position, horizontal release angle. And all of this data has been analyzed. And ultimately, the conclusions seem to be two things. One, you can't really practice free throw shooting. It doesn't make you any better, which means that it's largely psychological. The, there's some fascinating stuff in that, so much fascinating stuff there's in that piece. There's a lot piece. of fascinating stuff um, But, like, Dwight Howard once <laughs> made, like, 465 out of 500 free throws in practice or something like that. Right. It's just absurd. But one of the things that I found really interesting and is obvious once you think about it is that tall guys shoot from a higher angle from, you know, the their hand obviously is up – you know, higher in the air. Like a foot higher in some cases. And that that leads the ball as it descends to have, um, you know, a higher velocity. So Dirk Nowitzki's free throws approach the rim at 20.4 feet per second, whereas Kyrie Irving's approach at 19.4. And so, you know, if you're not like Dirk and your, you know, aim isn't perfect, if you're like Mike Pesca, then you're going to mm-hmm. get a less friendly bounce because mm-hmm. the ball is moving more quickly. That's really fascinating, and I hadn't thought about that. And with the underhand free throw, you have, you know, it goes even, you know, slower and softer. And so Rick Barry talked about this on the Gladwell podcast that, you know, his aim wasn't perfect every time, but he would get a friendly bounce because it was, you know, so soft going up there. Mike, I've always kind of had a little bit of doubt about the underhand free throw for a couple reasons, although I'm starting to tilt in the opposite direction. Number one, Rick Barry is one of the greatest shooters of all time. Period. His free throw percentage would have been amazing if he shot like behind his head, left-handed through his legs. If he shot conventionally, I am not at all convinced that he would have been worse than shooting underhand. You know, Steph Curry is in the 90-something percentile range shooting overhand, and the ball swishes every time. So if you're a great shooter, I'm not looking at your percentage underhand and thinking like, oh, this is great evidence that everyone should shoot underhand. And Barry Barry does make that argument. He's like, I did great. So, you know, Shaq would obviously do great. The other thing is, and that this is just on the stubbornness of the guys who are terrible, as you said, Mike, there's just not really any data that we can rely on to say, oh, there were like 20 guys that switched. There were 100 guys that switched and they improved by X amount. And the fact that we don't have that data is just entirely on the stubbornness. Mm -hmm. And so this is not an argument in defense of like, oh, you should shoot underhand, you know, you should shoot overhand because there's no data. I'm just saying that the claims that are made that obviously this would be a great improvement for everyone and you would go up by 10 points, you know, that's just not proven yet. And I think you totally, you totally throw out the Will Chamberlain underhand uh, percentage and regular percentage stats. No, I don't throw him out. I'm just saying, okay, we have one guy. Like when but it, let's be clear, yeah, when, the Chamberlain's improvement was from like 45% to 56%. It wasn't like from 45% to 90%. Right. And, the, and the, all I'm saying here, Mike, is that the sample size is incredibly small. small. Absolutely. But there, what's we the need counter get, evidence? We need, well, to, we need can, to get a bigger sample size. I'm, I'm coming back to defend you, but I'm just yeah. saying that people who say – Obviously, everyone should do it, and it would improve you by a great amount. I'm saying, okay, let's like let's experiment first, and then we can come to that conclusion. Well, I think a trial is needed. A trial is needed, <laughs> but the, can we conclude now that for an outlier like Andre Drummond, 
whose free throws are totally erratic. They, and the importance with free throw shooting, like other repetitive actions in sport, is that they are replicable and they should always be the same. And anal- analysis of Andre Drummond's shooting is that he's all over the place. Okay, where he me, releases the ball, you know, how close it is to his head, you know, everything let me, changes. Let me interrupt you because that was the other part that I wanted to drill down deeper on because we're told practice doesn't matter. It's all about psychology. And yet when Haberstroh goes through all this, it seems like the issue with – the you know guys that he focuses on, Drummond, Howard, Jordan, is that it is a physical thing. It's that they're not replicating their shot. And then he goes to a guy like Tim Duncan, who was bad, and then by re- repeating the same exact form every single time, he actually did improve his free throw shooting. So why can't Andre Drummond replicate that form you think it time, is psychology? And time and time? I but, think that but, has to be psychological. If you can't right. repeat a physical act over and over, one as basic as shooting a free throw, then there's something fucked up in your head. When we say the failure <laughs> That's a little to do harsh. <laughs> when we say the failure to do something physical is psychological, it has physical manifestations, mm-hmm. right, right, right? Right. So right, like when right. we say a, a pitcher can't find the strike zone and it's psychological, Logical, we could figure out where on the arm release angle or where on, you know, a, a, n- a number of metrics that are measurable that he's all over the map. But that's just the psycho- psychological manifesting itself in the physical, which is kind of a shorthand for the psychological. Josh, you and I don't disagree. All I'm saying is it should be endorsed. I'm not, I haven't made the jump to it will certainly work or it will work. 12% right. better among the terrible free throw shooters. But to me, the analogy is long putting. And I actually don't know the history of long putting was around for a while and eschewed and then someone did it and it took over like wildfire. But I predict that given salaries and given, I think the big trend that will embrace the underhand uh, free throw style, it has nothing to do with what's going on the court. It's when the guys give their post-game press conferences and dress in the nerd look and wear, you know, ri- uh, glasses with f- fake uh no no glass inside like there's this endorsement of wacky throwback let's do things differently uh, like the you know a nerd embrace of the nerd culture and i think this is going to be a manifestation of it and i predict that it will work and then in 10 years we'll be having the discussion should underhand free throw shooting be banned I was going to bring up the exact same thing about the long putter, the belly putter in golf, which has been banned, um, as you're alluding to. And then I just made explicit what you made implicit just because I'm that kind of guy. But (laughs) here's the question. Why do you think in golf there's not the kind of social stigma around it? There is some social stigma around it, certainly. Not the same level. Like you don't see Jordan Spieth when, you know, Adam Scott pulls out the long putter at a major just uh, falling into hysterics. That doesn't really happen. You do see somebody like, for example, Tiger Woods, when his putting goes to shit, insist that, you know, he's not going to go with a long putter, that he will just, no matter what, uh, you know, can you imagine the Tiger Woods like being stubborn and having an ego that, you know, no matter what, he's going to stick with, you know, the old the old fashioned uh, putting technique. But do you think there's something unique about basketball specific to basketball um, that you wouldn't 
try the. I don't know. The, the I don't know. Thing. I think I think some sports emphasize flair and uh, personal expression as part of the sport, and on the extreme of that is probably basketball, and some sports don't, and on the extreme of that is probably golf, and I think it absolutely has to do with the racial makeup and dynamic. I mean, you know, the majority uh, population doesn't have to show itself or prove itself, so in golf you could button down and not care what anyone thinks about you. Uh, so I should, it's not really that. So in golf, you could just, you know, adhere to the best form. There's no equivalent in golf of the Rucker League with someone with amazing dunks being given a nickname. It's just very different cultures surrounding the well, two sports. No, but here, a counter-argument. Like in golf, there is this like obsession with traditionalism and... Um, yeah, but that's a lack of flair. And no, but the but it the doesn't cl- look that different from the basic structure. It's an elongated club. It's a it's a it's a normal piece of equipment that's a foot longer. No, but there are a lot of players who say like using this newfangled piece of equipment is cheating. Oh, the and the putter. There have been other examples in golf, but it's also it's also within a range. And I think if you look at innovations in other sports. And the one that pops to mind for me, of course, is soccer style field goal kicking. I mean, for the first decade, it, 20 years, it was mocked. Who are these? And it was a physical Sissies, manifestation there. Sissies, European, tiny. It's crazy. What are they doing? And now, obviously, it is fully accepted. And I think in basketball, it is such, and like with soccer style field goal kicking, it is such a drastically different looking act that it opens itself to ridicule for that reason until like at the end of Hoosiers, Ollie makes those free throws. Everybody loves him. Well, Anawaku <laughs> is, um, who knows if he's going to get playing time for the Rockets or will even make the final roster. But, um, you know, sort of just like how Hack-A-Shack started with hacking a shack and then very slowly became the game destroying phenomenon. That, that Adam we, Silver Adam Silver had to intervene on and change the rules. You know, that that we know and don't love today. Maybe if one guy in the NBA does it and is successful, then the pressure from coaches and general managers will mount on these guys. Who will um, be? The issue is that players like Dwight Howard, Andre Drummond, DeAndre Jordan are maybe not Dwight Howard at this point, but are more important to their teams and more valuable to their franchises than, you know, the guys who are telling them, eh, you might want to, you know, shoot the free throw uh, underhanded. Like the reason that they're able to get away with this is that they're so great. And that was the same with Will Chamberlain, right? Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, now it is time for afterballs. And Mike mentioned that uh, there is still one player in college basketball who shoots underhand free throws, and that's Rick Barry's son, Canyon Barry. And this was actually part of my anti underhand free throw uh, sentiments that he wasn't like that great a free throw shooter underhand. He shot, you know, 74% his freshman year at College of Charleston, 72% 
his sophomore year. This is, you know, he's shooting 37% from three. 72% from the free throw line is not great. But then his junior year, he just totally ruined my uh, my anti <laughs> my anti underhand bias by shooting 85%. So he's figured out the form. He's doing well. Canyonberry, he transferred from College of Charleston to Florida. So we're going to have underhand free throws in the SEC. And College of Charleston actually beat LSU last year. Canyonberry's underhand free throws took down Ben Simmons, the number one pick in the NBA, NBA draft. QED. Mike Pesca, what is your canyon? So in the middle, on the day that uh, Donald Trump gave his speech to the RNC, which President Obama said he did not watch, I know what President Obama did do. He hosted the Kansas City Royals at the White House, but not all the Kansas City Royals. Johnny Gomes was not among the Royals' teammates, and this hurt Johnny Gomes. I don't know if you know this, but Johnny Gomes is the most patriotic player in baseball and perhaps the most patriotic human being on Earth. The last time he went to the White House... Uh, when he was with the Boston Red Sox, he wore a Stars and Stripes blazer. He proudly waved a giant flag at the Red Sox parade. He has a number of uh, flag tattoos. Maybe he's not patriotic. Maybe he just loves the flag. But he was... He was heartbroken. He was crestfallen not to have been invited to the White House. I can't. I've tried. I can't discern his actual politics. It just seems like the dude loves America. He does claim to be not politically correct, and he is bald with a goatee, and he is a white man and not college educated. So all these things say Trump supporter or Republican, but it seems that Johnny Gomes has at least kept it non-political and just loves America, flags, and the White House. He told Ken Rosenthal that this was the worst news that's ever happened to him in his baseball career. And this is after he left his Japanese team, the Rakuten Golden Eagles. He wasn't cut. It was by mutual consent. I suspect he just missed America. He loved America. There was also an earthquake and he didn't like uh, not being able to talk to his teammates. But this man loves America so much. It was sad not to see him at the White House. Ken Rosenthal, in his write-up of Johnny Gomes' great disappointment, also included details of who got to go and who didn't go. So among the other injustices, not being able to go to the White House. And by the way, presidents have to do this. It's like pardoning a turkey, and it's just the sort of thing that gets in the way of a president's job. And yet, it is kind of nice to see that these millionaire professional athletes going so crazy about the opportunity to go to the White House. So let me uh, read you some of the other ones. So Gomes played 12 games. He did not go. Among some of the other Royal affiliated individuals who would not be going were the team, were the team physician, the scouting director, the director of baseball operations slash analytics, and Don Free, who is in his 31st year as producer engineer of Royals radio broadcast. You have to cut the line somewhere. So the Royals producer engineer and 12-game participant Johnny Gomes not going to the White House. Johnny Cueto didn't get invited, and he threw a two-hitter in game two. It was a consi- but he didn't wear a American flag in past White House visits. <laughs> he is a Dominican, but he was pissed off. Yeah. These guys want to go to the White House. White, House, you- White House is pretty cool. You're yeah. a fucking two-hitter in game two. <laughs> yeah. That's strongly correlated to why they were going to the White House. This like, well, no, like single pinch hit, you know, with eight if, games left in the season. Yeah. If you had won a game for us in the literal World Series by throwing a two hitter, <laughs> then maybe you could go. 
But let's do a story on Johnny Gomes. <laughs> was there an explanation for why uh, Cueto didn't he get wasn't, were, He wasn't on the team for the full season. <laughs> they were consistent in who got to go. No, no producers and no uh, two hitters. This is how the Royals got to where they are by just you know drawing extremely bright lines for no reason on on inviting players to the White House because they've had so many opportunities to do that. Stefan, what is your canyon? Well, the Olympics, as we know, start in less than two weeks, and that means one thing. And I think you know what I'm going to talk about. It is the quadrennial spasm of joy that is the Olympic team handball tournament. I think I we are safely. Heem handball. <laughs> I think we are at the point, all of us, not just Josh and Mike, where I don't need to explain team handball. Let us dive right into a preview. No slight to the women. I'm pulling for host Brazil. Showed some guts by choosing to join Group A, which included Norway. Mighty Montenegro in Spain, who went one, two, three in London. The Norway women are going for the Olympic treble. It is worth noting that the International Handball Federation last week anticipated the IOC Russian doping ruling and pre-cleared the Russian women's team. Regarding the participation of athletes from Russia, we are glad to report that no positive sample was recorded for handball players from Russia, TASS reported. All right, now to the men. It pains me to report that Mighty Iceland fresh off of its Cinderella run at Euro 2016, will not be extending the global love fest in handball in Rio. They didn't qualify this after winning silver in 2008 and finishing fifth in 2012. Strakar Minir, that's my boys in Icelandic, they failed to get out of the group stage at the Euros in January. They beat Norway 26-25 in the opener. Then they were shocked by Belarus. Belarus? 39-38 and crushed by Croatia. 37-28. How we played today was terrible and shameful, left back Aaron Palmason said. Tough way to go out. I think we can all agree for Gjon Valur Sigurdsson, but hell of a career for the 36-year-old. 1,707 international goals. All right, so who do you root for? Group B in the 12-team field is Poland, Slovenia, Sweden, Germany, uh, Egypt, and Brazil. Germany's number one in the International Handball Federation ranking. Sweden's two. I'm with Slovenia. If they wear the uh, Charlie Brown jerseys, if not, I'm all about Egypt. Brazil does not have a chance. Group A is your group of death, though, Mike. France going for an Olympic three-peat. 2012 silver medalist Croatia is there, along with Denmark, Tunisia, Argentina, and Qatar. Can't root for France since their coach gave an arrogant but very quotable response when I asked him in Athens in 2004, why do you think the United States isn't good at handball? Now, I admit I was teeing him up. Here's what he said. As far as I'm concerned, there are a lot of games in which the United States does not excel. <laughs> Fuck that guy. All right. So Qatar, they finished second at the Worlds last year after opening with a 49-9 route of Uzbekistan. They cakewalked through Asian qualifying. They took bronze at the 2016 Beach Worlds in Budapest which actually has a couple of beaches on the Danube. As I wrote in Slate last year, Qatar has become a handball power the old-fashioned way by paying a bunch of foreigners and oil wells worth of rials to become naturalized citizens. Its roster in 2015 was more than half non-native. I couldn't find the full Olympic roster online, but one Qatari site listed eight players, one Qatari plus players from Cuba, Montenegro, Syria, Egypt, Tunisia, and the United Arab Emirates. There should also be some ex-French ex-Croatian and ex-Serbians on the team. France beat 
air quotes, Cutter in the 2015 World Finals, 25 to 22. But Cutter got a measure of revenge in January, winning a friendly 28-25. France did field a B team, but Les Bleus were not pleased. That French coach, Claude Onesta, still there. Third cycle, fourth cycle. I don't know. He's been there for a long time. He lied afterward that the game didn't have any significance. Quote, the idea was to see more clearly the quality of our young players. Lamond quoted him as saying, at least according to Google Translate and my wife, then there are political and moral circumstances. Everyone experiences them as he thinks. I would have preferred that we had fought them because for me, this message can be important, but I cannot share that message with people who perhaps do not realize or are not interested. Like I said, that guy's a jerk. So if it's France against Cutter for gold, I'm voting for Jill Stein. <laughs> Josh, what's your canyon? So I was wondering last night, as one does, why are some sports arenas called gardens? You've mm. got Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden, Boston Garden, Maple Leaf Gardens. In 2010, the New York Times explained it, writing that ornamental grounds used as a place of public resort is one of the dictionary definitions of gardens and saying that the first Madison Square Garden opened in 1879 and had been preceded by a number of Manhattan theaters, some built in former garden areas that kept that word for the enclosed buildings themselves. Then the Google machine told me that Boston Garden, which opened in 1928, was originally known as Boston Madison Square Garden, which Mm -hmm. in my view is extremely embarrassing for Bostonians. Just New York copycats, wannabes all along. There's still something called the Boston Madison Square Garden Club, which is a private club that was in the Boston Garden and has since moved to its successor, the TD Garden. According to its website, the Garden Club continues to maintain a reputable standing in the Boston community and remains one of the oldest sports clubs in the city. So you mean the Madison Square Garden Club, Josh? The Boston Madison Square Garden Club, Stefan. That's very nice that they have such a reputable standing. So then I was trying to figure out how long they called it Boston Madison Square Garden. And it was actually uh, a few years, not not an uh, insignificant amount of time. According to the trusty newspapers.com, the mentions start to drop, drop off by the mid to late 1930s, but there's still mentions like up to like 1960, the Boston Madison Square Hmm. Garden. I had no idea. Okay, so then I was looking at a little bit more Boston garden history, uh, again, as one does. And I found this book, The Boston Garden by uh, Richard A. Johnson and Brian uh, Condonone. Sorry for butchering your name, Brian. So then I found this book, The Boston Garden by Richard A. Johnson and Brian uh, Condonone. And I found this ad in this book. And now my preamble is close to to being done. This is what we're really here to talk about, is the game of golf bowling. Golf bowl, the name's the game. This is an ad from 1930. Play this fascinating game at the new Boston Garden Golf Course. The tagline is, played like golf, scored like bowling. It's 15 cents, 30 balls, 10 frames. There's this picture of a woman in a long black dress holding a golf club and there's a ball and there's a a male companion of hers crouched down resetting the pins so no automatic uh, pin setting at the boston garden golf course and she is ready to take a swing and try to knock down the pins uh, with her golf ball and so the caption on this ad in the boston garden book says 
played like golf, scored, scored like bowling, bragged this 1930 advertisement for the new game of Golf Bowl. This precursor of miniature golf was added to the stable of sports and games crazes of the era, although it never achieved popular success. <laughs> Set up in a bowling pin pattern were 10 small bottle pens, and players used a putter and golf ball to knock them down. Another game, Golfin, G-O-L-F-U-N, combined golf and pool skills. And so the question that this naturally leads to is, would Mike Pesca have been good at golfing? Hmm. <laughs> would I guess deploy the optional blowhole method? <laughs> what is that? I don't know. I just think of golfing and dolphins, and there must be some sort of blowhole overlap. Um, inevitably. So golf bowling, uh, you know, the ad says it never really caught on, uh, you know, uh, never achieved popular success. I have been able to find absolutely no evidence that it existed <laughs> other than this ad. I mean, I didn't search for that long. But uh, you would think In that- Sister Carrie by Dreiser, aren't there long passages about golfing? Um, naturally but the thing that has taken off is golf bowling but in reverse i was able to find a couple videos stefan that went viral ish in the last year where there's a dude who has like a a bowling ball on a tee of a golf hole and then rolls it i'm playing the, the video it's it's silent here so the guy rolls the ball it goes down the fairway. It's rolling. It's rolling. Then there are some bros on the green who have set up. It's like a dude perfect, like trick shot sort of thing. They've set up the pens. Oh, it's it's a right to left. They're, you've got to follow the grain. It's a 12 on the stint meter here at Augusta. And up the ball is, oh, it knocks him down. It's a strike. This seems very fun. <laughs> that looks like fun. So, well, you got your frisbee golf. So, bowling golf, yes. Golf, you got your bowling, soccer no. golf. Yeah. Bowling golf. Bowling golf. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. We'd like your golf, bowling, or bowling golf handicaps. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating. It really helps the show. If you rate us, it helps the show in particular if you give us a good rating. But you have editorial independence as a podcast listener. Do what you do what you feel is just. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Instead of uh, golf in the Olympics, I would have rather seen bowling golf in the Olympics. Or golfing. That's definitely true. Or just billiards. Billiards would be good. Darts. Snooker. Snooker. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.